welcome to the Freed Media Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Heil, founding member of the Freed Fellowship and Freed Media. This is a podcast dedicated to bridging the gap between entrepreneur and entrepreneur. In this episode, you'll hear one Freed story from someone who made the jump from the corporate world to the vast unknown of entrepreneurship. We at Freed Media know that the road to entrepreneurship can be lonely, but it doesn't have to be. We hope that in sharing Freed stories, that you will gain some tangible tips on how to get freed yourself. It's our mission to provide support and community for those working their five to nine side hustles and jotting down their someday business plan. We're navigating the journey ourselves, and we'd love to take you along with us. Ready to get freed? Hi, Freed community. This is Andy Louis-Charles, um, and I'm here, you know, one of the founding members of the Freed Fellowship, and I'm joined by another founding member, uh, Maggie. Hi, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Yeah, and now uh, we are going to be interviewing Kyla, who is our April uh, Freed Fellow um, with Agua Bonita. And I don't want to go too far and you know, kind of spoil all the fun about it. I want to give you an opportunity to, to talk about it. Um, so let's start out, have you introduce yourself to the community as well as our audience and share a little bit about you know, how you got into the business, you know, how'd you stumble across it, and share like highlights about it. Yeah, sure. So hello, everyone. My name is Kayla Castaneda. I'm co-founder and CEO of Agua Bonita. Um, my other half is Erin Pontel. She heads up um, operations and is really the mastermind behind our really beautiful cans. Um, if you check us out, we make the first line of healthy, ready-to-drink aguas frescas. Um, and aguas frescas are a traditional Mexican drink, usually made with fruit, non-sparkling water, and traditionally a lot of sugar. Um, use spices instead to get these really nostalgic flavors. Um, so some really exciting stuff that we're doing um, in the ready-to-drink space, in the CPG space. And yeah, I'm really excited to share more about Agua Bonita with you all. When it comes to my background, I actually used to work for Coca-Cola. So that is how I really started uh, in the beverage industry um, in a professional capacity. But before that, I mean, I used to wait tables. I worked uh, as any struggling college kid did. Um, I went to New York City for my college education um, for as long as I was in college <laughs> and really got a great culinary experience there. Um, and as I started working for large corporations, always found myself drawn to the food and beverage side of things. So I worked for Major League Baseball, Starwood Marriott, um, but always loved the food and beverage side of those businesses. So I eventually landed with Coca-Cola. Um, I did market development with them for a few years. And then after that, I wanted to work in a capacity that I could um, make more meaningful contributions in my work. So I started consulting for beverage startups. And um, that's where I met Aaron, actually. And the pandemic hit. And then I was out of work and she had just had a newborn. I have two little ones in the house and um, had this free time on my hands. And we took it as an opportunity to make something that we knew that consumers would want. But that was also very much a reflection of ourselves on shelves. And that was really how Al Bonita was born. So th th that's a wonderful story. I, I love hearing that background. Um, go a little bit into like why you, you thought that there was a gap in the market. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, how do you, number one, how did you, 
uh, identify that gap? Um, and then also, how do you see that gap different than like maybe a spin drift or a hint? You know, it seems like a lot of beverages are kind of circling in the same category, albeit maybe not with the the same kind of cultural heritage, you know, that that this your your beverage specifically kind of tapped into. Yeah. I mean, I, I know some folks will give you the advice of like, don't make something that is centered around you, like make something that is centered around other folks. But honestly, like I have never been a huge sparkling water fan. And so I wanted something that I myself as a consumer could get behind. And it felt like everything on the market was either carbonated, which I um, just wanted something a little bit different, or it just didn't have enough of a flavor profile to keep me coming back. It just like didn't stack up to the aguas frescas that we had in the home and really wanted something that still was not like artificially laden or sugar laden, you know, just um, that real fruit. And so when I started like thinking about how are we going to put together our product um, and how is it missing from the competitive landscape? I knew that it was missing because I, as a consumer, had always wanted something that existed um, like what we were making. And so I, I think that that was a really great starting point for us was like, if you could make your ideal drink, what would it look like? Then, you know, after years of working with Coke and Aaron working in um, startups, we had a lot of consumer data points that we could index ideas against and really try to um, deduce down like what was most important to folks based on our experiences and our data collection. Um, so yeah, that, that was really how we started to realize that there isn't something like this in the market. And, you know, we do get the comparison to Spindrift often um, because of the real fruit and no um, added sugar, no added anything really. Um, but they're at about like 5% juice, whereas we're more like 50% juice. So it's a much different drinking experience and um, like really much different category. Well, so that that's a great... I, I love that component, that data point. You know, we're, we're big into power facts. You know, we, we talk about power facts all the time. And that's one that, you know, I'd advise to, you know, double down on that number. I tend to tell uh, entrepreneurs and we tend to share, you know, to make yourself very unique. And one way to make yourself unique, even though you're in a category that exists, is, you know, by 10xing uh, what someone else does. So if someone does five, you do 50, you know, they do... 10, you do 100, whatever the, the, the 10x would be. So you literally are 10x. You're, people use 5% mm-hmm. fruit, we use 50% fruit. I think that that's, uh, to me, that leaps off the page for me is just how much mm-hmm. fruit infused your beverage is versus the other competitors. And that wasn't like apparent to me again, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but I, to me, I think that that's a, that's a huge, huge one. How does that compare to historically people who um, had grown up drinking this naturally in their communities? Um, how would you think if someone picks it up you know, your, your can in a store, would they say like, would it bring them back to that moment in their childhood? Um, do, would they feel like it really captures it? Do you feel like you've had the compromise to, to be able to land it on the shelf? Those are the best compliments that we do get when folks are like, this reminds me of my childhood or like this brought me a really nostalgic experience because, um, even though we are better for you, always frescas, some of our flavor profiles, like watermelon chile, that's really crafted around the experience of like watermelon chunks sprinkles with tahini, which wouldn't necessarily like be an agua fresca on its own, but it's our iteration on that. 
Um, and so it's, that's always the best compliment that we can get. And that we do get when folks are like, Oh my gosh, like this reminds me of my home, or this reminds me of my childhood. And just in a way that I don't have to feel guilty about because we don't have all of that sugar. And I think, um, you know, as we have gotten older, people are more in tune with uh, the labeling of things and their sugar intake, and it uh, matures their palate a little bit more. So I think it's a really great compromise in um, meeting them in a way that they're already used to now as an adult that's like cutting back on sugar and being more conscious about their choices without compromising on taste. Oh, that, that, that's wonderful. So, you know, talking about like the compliment that you get and people say, hey, that takes me back to that moment, which I think that that's the power of a lot of uh, food and beverage brands is you can take either take people back to a moment in time. It's almost like music, you know, music mm -hmm. always takes you back to a moment. I think food is also has that uh, dynamic. If you can either take people back to a moment in time and, and that nostalgic component, or you can be a part of creating that that memory with them. I think that that's a slam dunk for a brand. Maybe share a little bit just uh, how this drink, how you remember it as, as a child. And, you know, what were you thinking? Did you think like as a child, like, hey, I want to I want to make food and beverage when I grow up? Like, how did that tie into like, you know, what you thought you'd be doing at this time? When, when yeah. You <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because these recipes do start in my kitchen. Um, but as a young child, yeah, we did have the very sugary versions of them. Um, and they really started with my grandpa, like my grandpa would bring home overripe fruit from like the fields. We live in a very agricultural heavy area. So lots of orchards, lots of dairies, things like that. We actually grow 60% of the nation's produce where I'm headquartered in Hanford, California. And so lots of produce always. And yeah, we would make um, the sugary versions in our own home. But then my grandpa um, had a diabetes diagnosis and the whole family really had to like shift our thinking about sugar. And that's not, um, that's not the easiest thing to do um, when certain like cultural traditions like are already implement them or like rely heavily on them. So there was a lot of shifting um, gears and the way that we understood added sugar and our approach to added sugar um, in our family's diet across the board. Um, but then like things like the spicy skews that we have, like <laughs> my grandpa um, was a funny man and he would um, dare me when I was little, he'd be like, I will give you a dollar if you eat this jalapeno and I would do it, you know? Um, but it really gave me an appreciation for like spicy foods. And uh, I ended up loving that kind of spicy profile in a lot of the dishes that we had in our home. So uh, yeah, so Albanita has been kind of a fusion of both of those things of like the less sugary versions of things, but then also paired with, with like the cultural spices that we have. And I mean, we stay pretty much in our lane too, when it comes to the spices that we incorporate. So, um, in beverage in particular, lots of times when you hear like a spicy drink, they're talking about ginger or turmeric. Like for us, it's actual jalapeno, it's habanero. It's, you know, it's real like chiles, like chili powder, um, which is a little bit different than what is on the market right now. Um, and so that's been appealing to folks too. Oh yeah, no, no, that's great. And when you were formulating it again, the uh, spoiler alert, I know Maggie always gives me a hard time. Like anytime I bring up anything, she'll say like, Oh, you're invested in that. You've been invested in that. Like 
over my years, I've, I've invested in almost probably anything, <laughs> any kind of industry you 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 looked at. Somehow, I've I've had an investment. You like you probably invested in it. So just you know, with my experience with with uh, food and beverage, a lot of times what you do in your kitchen can't go to the shelf. Yeah, so much that it has to go through. You have to make it shelf stable. If you, you get any, unless you you, you want to have a high inventory turnover. Did you ultimately partner with a flavor house to get, you know, the flavor right and the composition right and the formula right to get it to the shelf? Again, for some of our audience, we, we often get uh, a lot of potential uh, fellowship applications that are tied to beverage, you know, and, mm-hmm. this space. and it, it's not a, a easy route to go from a something in your kitchen to a formulation to a shelf. So yeah. maybe maybe share a little bit of that journey, you know, of taking it from the kitchen to a shelf. Um, whether you partner with any kind of flavor houses or if your time at Coca-Cola helped kind of inform your your travel. Yeah. So um, we the formulation process for us was very tedious um, because we wanted to keep things as minimal as possible. And so even sometimes now, like we are still tweaking formulations and it's been like a year since we started working on them. The process from going to your kitchen to commercial formulation is very difficult. And so we um, partnered with a food scientist to help us navigate those waters. But we also went through a, an accelerator program um, that gave us a really great mentor team. And one of them was a food scientist. We were very upfront about like what our needs were as we entered that accelerator program to get the most out of it. Um, so we didn't necessarily partner with like a flavor house per se, um, but really partnered with as a food scientist and, um, balanced out different juice blends to get that desired, uh, feel, you know? So yeah, I mean, going to the flavor house is uh, probably will save a lot of time and save a lot of um, energy. But for us, we just really wanted to be as minimal as possible with our ingredients. So that's why we didn't go uh, the flavor house route, just for the sake of really trying to create something as close to what was in our kitchen as possible. Sure. No, no, I, I think that, that and the fact that you're able to find a food scientist that knows your space is, is wonderful. And mm-hmm. just open offer. Uh, if you do need any referrals to flavor houses that are super good, we can refer you to one that I, I, we've worked with for years. Awesome. They they will, you know, find the kind of the mouthfeel, the flavoring. If you want to be all organic, certified organic, you know, they'll they'll get you there. So um, yeah, I mean, we're always open to introductions, especially the spice ones are a little tricky. So yeah, yeah. and and uh, one um, beverage brand brand that that I backed. Um, essentially was driven by ginger and cayenne pepper. Mm-hmm. So, you know, finding that spiciness and the right levels. I mean, again, it, it, it took months and months and months, but but uh, there were wonderful partners in, in landing that in, in a good way. So if you need any introductions, we'd be happy to make that. Um, yeah, I love it. That's half the fun is R&D. <laughs> yeah, it, it totally is. I, I love doing the samplings. You know, those, those are really <laughs> enjoyable. Um, you also mentioned like uh, incubator and um, especially within, you know, for anybody listening who's, trying to do a food and beverage, um, there actually is a, a great emergence of a lot of food and beverage incubators. Um, I know Chobani um, is one that I'm familiar with, a really great platform. Um, I think there's another one, FoodX. There's several out there. Um, I don't know if you want to share a little bit about, about that experience for uh, maybe some of our listeners who maybe have a food or beverage brand, thinking about an incubator, uh, what, you know, uh, good the good portion of it, things that you know, they, they should be on a watch out for and any possible recommendations. 
Yeah. So um, we went through the SKU CPG accelerator. It was based out of Austin. I know that they have a few different um, tracks in a few different cities. Now we did the original programming um, for over the course of four months and the experience was great for us. We were able to really take a deep look at our business um, in a variety of facets and get a mentorship team that was matched to our specific needs. So we went through the programming with um, a small cohort and were able to, you know, cover a variety of topics, but then also lean into our mentor team separately to cover things that we really needed to dive deep on that other companies may not have been so applicable for them. Um, So it was really tailored to our needs. And even after coming out of the program, some of the mentors that we met there are advisors on our um, on our board, you know, and have been a really great value add for us. Um, one of them in particular is like the former SVP of sales of PepsiCo. Oh, I don't know how we would have met them without the accelerator program. Um, so I would always just caution folks though, as they're looking at these accelerator programs and incubation programs to talk to other founders that have gone through it before to get a feel for how it um, impacted their business, good or bad, which is something that we did before we committed to this program. Um, and then also like, don't be afraid to ask very candid questions um, because ultimately this program is more than likely going to either go on your cap table or be a part of your business uh, long-term. And so they are your business partners, you know, and so um, you want to vet them um, just as you would any other person that you're going into business with. And then make sure that you can commit to it. For us this year, the programming was virtual. If it hadn't been virtual, I don't think that we would have been able to participate So that was a big win for us, but you know, it still took a lot of time, even being in our own homes, especially with little ones, took a lot of time to set aside to make sure that you're really gleaning the most that you possibly can from the programming at hand and like taking the initiative to reach out to other people that are involved with the program that maybe you're not getting direct FaceTime with, um, during those weekly meetings, you know, like you got to kind of take the initiative upon yourself to make those connections sometimes. Yeah, no, that, that, that's some great advice for, for the audience. And, and maybe along those lines a little bit, um, you know, being an entrepreneur or starting a business is, you know, so many times, I think the, the narrative is that it's a lonely experience. Um, can you share a little bit how you've made it less lonely? I think you mentioned, you know, you do have a partner, you know, and a co-founder. Mm-hmm. So maybe that helps a little bit. How are other ways uh, do you plug into communities so that that journey doesn't feel, you know, lonely? Yeah. Having a co-founder helps exponentially. Um, There are days that it is very, very difficult. Her and I have complementary backgrounds and complementary skill sets. So oftentimes that means that we're working on different parts of the businesses that at varying times have different levels of difficulty. So it's nice to have someone to vent to and to chat about that like really understands exactly where you're at. Um, It also has been um, helpful for us as we start to talk to investors that there is a team behind it because you know one person can't possibly do 
everything that your business will ultimately demand of you. So if you can get a co-founder um, or you do have a co-founder, I would say lean on them. I'm grateful that I have a great one. But then also, even if you don't, um, meeting other operators, especially in your industry, in your vertical, um, has been a great tool too. We, I mean, I have become friends with other brand owners who I have competed against in pitch competitions, you know, and it's in the spirit of like, we understand where each other are coming from and what we're trying to do. And like the competition isn't necessarily with each other. It's like the shelf space, you know what I mean? And I think moving in that spirit has helped you know, create a sense of camaraderie between myself and other brand owners and operators. So um, I have two questions. One is a standard question and one off of what you just said. So I'm going to follow the path first. You had mentioned about, you know, competition shelf space. So my understanding from our review of your business, um, you are mainly direct to consumer. Is that correct? Is there plans to go retail and and get into the stores? We'd love to hear a little bit of like how you're managing, you know, being a D2C brand versus, you know, the traditional retail route where, again, a lot of visibility, a lot of access, you know, you get a lot more chances being on the shelf at the same time, you know, margins they cut in half. You don't have the relationship Mm -hmm. directly to the customer. There are a lot of pitfalls to it. Talk a little bit about, you know, some of our, you know, so that some of our listeners who, you know, maybe are thinking about how to sell it. They just assume, hey, get on a shelf. That's how you do it. You know, being D2C is is unique and it's a a growing part of a lot of, uh, you know, food and beverage brands now. And and maybe not everybody who's seeking to do it is aware how big that that is. Yeah. So... We are primarily direct-to-consumer now. And I say that we were unintentionally a direct-to-consumer brand because we just sold out so quickly online that um, that's where the bulk of our sales have come from. We started direct-to-consumer at a very opportune time for direct-to-consumer companies being launched mid-pandemic. That's how everyone was doing their shopping and it's how people were um, discovering new products. So for us, it was a natural fit to pursue that route. And it gives you control of how you present yourself to your customers and gives you the vehicle to really build a close relationship with your customers. So direct-to-consumer in that way is amazing. And um, we don't see the direct-to-consumer part of our business being abolished anytime soon by any means. However, with direct-to-consumer, with beverage in particular, beverages are heavy. <laughs> so they And they ship and they never get any lighter. You know, So that is something that um, as you start to scale and you start to think about your margins and whatnot, that is a very like big reality of, of things is that retail has to play a part in your success if you're going to continue to grow and kind of get those other discovery points in front of consumers. But I, I would say we're being very intentional about how we roll out into retail. Um, so it's not like we're just kind of pursuing everything and anything that comes our way, even like very targeted geographies, very targeted um, channels. Um, so that way we can still try to stay as close to our consumer as possible. And, you know, you want to build that sell story before you scale to a point that is just unmanageable. Um, and to give people a reason that you know how your product performs in retail as well. Yeah. So yeah, so mixed. So one experience I've had, and hopefully this you find this helpful, is that um, I've worked with uh, you know direct to 
consumer food and beverage brands. And one thing that they've done is, you know, they would start on the, you know, the online version and going directly to the consumer. And they would use the data, you know, from orders to determine where they should go after shop. So if you saw that like Austin, Texas, for some reason, everybody's buying it from Austin, Texas, then you say, hey, that's actually a market that where we should get onto shelves there and use that as a as almost like market testing to say, okay, you know, this is available anywhere in the world. And if we start to see natural clusters, that that actually informs where we should start to get onto shelves. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. And we had a hypothesis that Southern California and South Texas would do really well because of our product type and the demographic there, the consumer education gap just being a lot smaller. And then that was proven and reinforced by the data that we got from our direct-to-consumer pipeline was like, yeah, tons of people in Texas and tons of people in California are buying our products. So then we started in through that discovery process, folks that were buying us for their own like drinking pleasure just happened to be retail owners and like boutique owners and things like that. So kind of started to permeate retail um, in those ge- geographies as well. So uh, yeah, I mean, that is exactly what has happened for us. Oh, that's, that's, that's awesome. So, um, you know, with expansion and doing all this, how you manage your time, you know, uh, you mentioned you had a co-founder, you know, you, you're, you're a direct consumer, you're expanding to retail. I know it takes a lot. I mean, calling stores and, and doing multiple things, the vendors, you know, running, yeah. you know, I noticed on your website, I try to order, you're running a little bit behind, you're out of stock, but mm-hmm. then that means you're, you're trying to do a new run, you know, so you're talking yeah. to, if you're using a co-packer, you're like, okay, now we got to give the ingredients and then, you know, doing all that stuff, you know, share a little bit how, how you manage the time being a, a smaller team of two and a growing business. Yeah. So delegation is the name of the game for us. Aaron and I try to split up things as much as possible to where we're operating in our zone of genius as much as possible and like being as efficient as we can at what we're good at. Um, So like I would not be creating marketing mock-ups. You'll never catch me doing that, but Aaron can do it in like two seconds. You know what I mean? So really kind of uh, wading through the responsibilities as we see fit. And I mean, we have internal things like, uh, a roadmap and like we're, or we just put down like all of our goals and to do's and divide them up so we can divide and conquer. And then, um, leaning on outside services as well, if they're applicable to help us. So we are just onboarding right now with a retail incubation program that is basically like a de facto sales team to help us permeate, um, Southern California retail. Right. So like that's their only focus and like so just kind of delegating that to them and yeah trying to make sure that we have as much of our time back in our day as possible to focus on the highest priority things that like only we can do if something if someone else can do something and we can afford for them to be able to do it then it's probably something that we will outsource or delegate okay and that's great i i know a lot of entrepreneurs they love their business and their product and their service so much, it's so hard to let go. But, you know, the idea of delegation is is not about losing power. It's actually about gaining power and, mm-hmm. you know, gaining power to focus on the thing that you are best at rather than everything that you probably do a lot better than a lot of people. But, you know, what is that highest and best use and constantly moving yourself there is I think every entrepreneur, every founder, you know, struggles with that continually. So um, yeah. that's great. That- I mean, it's hard. There's still lots and lots and lots of late nights and uh, where we're online way longer than we should have been. But we, we try to, we try our best to work that way. 
So, um, you know, what two pieces of advice might you have for someone who's beginning on a similar path as you? I would say network as much as possible. Every failure or experience that I've had before has melded into a beautiful culmination of things that we need now. And I would not have had that if I hadn't networked with people or tried things and stuff like that. So you'll realize that more people want to help you than you think want to help you. There's a lot of people that like want to see you succeed, but you will never know that if you don't meet them. So I would say network, network, network. And then my other piece of advice would be to just like, when it comes to finances, really ask yourself, do we need this? <laughs> like, you know, do we need this? Um, because money goes so quickly, especially um, in CPG. It's just a very high capital game. And we we bootstrapped up until like this point. We had one angel investor right at the beginning a year ago. And, and that was like enough to produce a pilot. And then everything was bootstrapped up until now that we're like actively fundraising. So, I mean, even when it's not coming out of your own wallet, like the money ends somewhere, you know? So just think all the time, like, do we need this? Like, what's the return on investment of this dollar? It doesn't matter if it's 50 cents, doesn't matter if it's 50,000, like just really think through those things as critically as possible. Yeah. No, 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 that, that, that's a great lesson. Both of them are, are pretty solid. I, I like the, uh, do we need this? I think, I think that's a good lesson for every founder, especially starting on. Like even after you, if you, uh, cause a lot of, you know, our community probably hasn't raised money, you know, even if you're bootstrapping, especially if you're bootstrapping, I mean, you really should be asking yourself, do I need this? You know, is this worth me dipping into savings or, or running this on the corporate credit card or personal credit card to do this? Mm -hmm. Do I really need this? You know, does this move me along on the business? And I think that that's a, if someone listening gets one thing from this uh, conversation, you know, that having you say in their head, do you need this? I think yeah. is, a, is a great question. So, you know, besides the free community, what, what, what resources uh, have helped you navigate, you know, your, your journey? I mean, it could be a book, a podcast, a person, social media account, like what, you know, one, maybe two uh, resources that you're like, man, this has been so invaluable for, for me and, and for my business. I would say LinkedIn. Yeah. I think folks kind of underestimate the power of LinkedIn sometimes, but you can find some really great um, professional connections there. Just the more active that you are. Like I used to be surprised when I would get like 20 views on a post and now I'm getting like 10,000 views on a post, which I know is like, for some people, they get hundreds of thousands of views. But for me, I'm like, okay, that means someone somewhere that can possibly help us is seeing this post. Um, so I would say LinkedIn is a great one. And then um, when it comes to just like personal entrepreneurial journey, I, I really liked the book Capital Gains by Chip Gaines. And it just kind of, it tells a story of how him and his wife, Joanna Gaines built like the Magnolia network and everything. And I think that it has some very authentic stories in there on how to treat people that you work with and how to treat them well and how to stay grounded as you work through um, both problems and successes in business. So I feel like if anyone ever needs a, a good pick me up, Capital Gains is a good one. Oh, that's great. And um, I, I must admit, I, I watched their program on HGTV. I, I absolutely <laughs> love that. And I, I, I did not, I was not sold on Shiplap until I saw that. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm 100% sold. So um, to, to round it out, one, one great question that, um, that Jackie 
asks when she's uh, interviewing uh, fellows is, um, you know, what would you tell yourself five years ago uh, now? And then, you know, where do you see yourself being five years from now? So, you know, if you could talk to yourself five years ago, you know, what would you tell that person? And five years from now, where could you see this person? What I would tell myself five years ago would be, this is going to come in more handy than you think it will. So learn more. Um, Because that's when I was still working for Coke. So yeah, so I would tell myself like, those days that you don't want to get up for work, like are the days that you need to be extra in tune with what's going on. Yeah, so that's advice for my past self. Advice for my future self would be to make sure that you still feel good about the projects that you're pouring yourself into. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of um, pressure sometimes to adapt your product to like the trendiest thing on the market or like, you know, what, whatever is the new hot thing in consumer. But if that doesn't like authentically vibe with you, like you don't need to do that. You're not going to find joy in it and it's going to make this journey a lot more difficult. Yeah, no, that's great. I think one thing that we always share uh, with founders is, you know, build a business that you love. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. and I'm super amazed at how many times you come across founders and entrepreneurs who've built businesses that they absolutely hate. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't like running it. They don't enjoy it. They don't enjoy their customers. They don't enjoy the service they're providing. And it's it's kind of funny. You, you would think that it wouldn't happen, but it happens in drips. And it's exactly for the reason that you laid out. It's like they saw something or they were giving a, a bit of a, a, a piece of advice where, oh, it'll be so much easier and it'd be so much better if you would just do this and do that. And then it chips away from the vision that they had and the passion and the thing that was driving them. And then before it, they get some watered down version or some weird convoluted version of their original idea. And they're mm-hmm. like, that's actually not what I wanted to do. <laughs> I mean, like, um, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to design clothes and now I run a laundromat or something. I mean, like, it's like, how did it go so wrong, you know? Um, So I I think that that's great advice because it's that passion for what you want to deliver that will get you through the rough time. So I I think that that's um, that's such great advice uh, for the community. Here at the Freed Fellowship, we are building a community of talented individuals ready to make theirs and others' business dreams come true. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you guys next time as we interview another fellow team member. And until then, don't forget to free your mind, free your media.